marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry. The activists. The medical professionals. The legislators. The economists. The regulators. The lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the COIN Podcast Network. In part one of our two-part conversation about industrial hemp, cannabis economist Bo Whitney and I spoke about the potential, locally, regionally, nationally, and globally, And that potential is mind-boggling when you look at the possibilities and all the good the industry could do if it reached its potential. Here in part two, Bo and I will talk about the reality of where the hemp industry stands in the United States right now. And that portrait isn't as rosy. But there is hope if we would only get out of our own way. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast, one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Bo, your company recently put a survey in the field about industrial hemp. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a companion survey to one that you did for the medicinal and adult use industry last year. And some of your findings about where the hemp industry stands were surprising. Well, first of all, there's really not a whole lot of data out there. And that's through no fault of the industry. It actually is a, is a result of the federal illegality of cannabis in general. So for the last five years, I've been petitioning the U.S. government to start collecting data on the cannabis industry as a whole, be it adult use, medical, or industrial. Even this year alone, despite Congress saying we need data, the North American Industrial Classification System, which helps provide data on employment and tracking the flow of commerce throughout the United States economy and the global economy, they politely declined my request. Uh, They said, we just don't have enough time to figure all this out, despite the fact that I've been talking to them for five years. And so there's not a whole lot of data. And a lot of times when policymakers are trying to answer some of these complex questions associated with cannabis, I always ask, well, have you asked the operators? And usually there's this pregnant pause and there's a lot of silence and it's kind of uncomfortable for a while. And so for the last few years, I've been deploying these surveys for the hemp industry and trying to ask 
similar questions about, you know, do you have a buyer for your crop or, you know, how much did you plant or what is your processing capacity or how many people are you employing and what are you paying them and are you profitable and all this stuff. And so what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to create a baseline of data that people can build upon once the U.S. federal government starts collecting data. Time's a wasting right now. And so I put out this survey. It was similar in nature to the adult use and medical because a lot of the policy implications and the like, but I tailored it specifically to piggyback off the previous two surveys that I had on industrial. There were some things in the survey findings that were not surprising and some that actually were and kind of blew my mind. Now, to kind of level set, there was a lot of interest in fiber and grain you know, going back decades. It wasn't until CBD started coming into vogue in the 2017-2018 timeframe that people really started piquing their interest from an agricultural perspective. And when the 2018 Farm Bill came about, everybody rushed in to plant CBD. And as a result, it just flooded the market. There wasn't enough infrastructure. There wasn't enough processing capacity. There wasn't enough transport and storage. It was legal thanks to the Farm Bill, but then it's kind of like, now what? And I think that this is a harbinger of things to come from for the adult use and medical side of things. And so there's some key learnings that that sector can glean from the hemp industry and its deployment. But what happened is flood of people into the market, massive amounts of acres licensed, and then nothing. There was oversupply. Uh, Heading into 2021, there was a 200 million pound excess, 68,000 tons of biomass, just biomass alone, the raw materials that are used in the extraction process, 68,000 tons of excess. And as a result, prices crashed. They went from $42 a pound for this biomass in 2018, 2019 timeframe to $1.50 or a dollar a pound, and that dollar a pound was just, you know, last month or last couple of months. And so it crashed, and as a result, a lot of farmers came in, and then they exited, unfortunately. A lot of processors came in, couldn't make money, exited. So there's a reason for it. It was very clear in the survey that a lot of this had to do with this murky environment from the regulatory perspective, but then it also had to do with the lack of products being deployed into the retail channel. What does a murky environment mean for an industrial hemp farmer or processor? Well, part of that murkiness is a result of the fact that, say, for example, the FDA has said that CBD is a drug, but it's saying that because it's defined as a drug, it cannot be defined as anything else for a supplement, a food ingredient, anything of that nature. Then the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, their policies aligned but didn't align with the USDA in terms of what's illegal and what's legal. There weren't policies deployed. There weren't rules deployed on how to regulate this at a federal level. And because people weren't sure what was legal and what was illegal and what could change overnight, here's another example, process materials. So, And I I like to use CBD, even though I've said in the previous episode that it's not about CBD, it's more about fiber and grain, but CBD policy tends to influence fiber and grain pretty dramatically. So on the CBD side, the DEA said any intermediary 
products, products that maybe you extract the oil and the oil is concentrated and so therefore it has higher levels of THC in it before it ultimately reaches the consumer. That was deemed illegal and then it wasn't and then it was and then they said, well, we need to study this. And so when you are not sure what's illegal, what's legal, it tends to seize up the industry and it tends to really freak out uh, large investors and large corporations that would have otherwise embraced hemp in their product offering, say the likes of Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble and, and like, even on the textile side, on the fiber. And as a result of this confusion and how to regulate it, it's just kind of seized up the market. And so that's the murkiness I talk about. Now, in addition to that, when the federal government is not providing clarity, then the state governments feel compelled to step in and provide the type of clarity that they feel comfortable with. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. Um, for example, in Oregon, during one of the policy discussions in a large group setting, a state representative basically yelled at me on the phone and said, hemp cultivators are just cartels and they're growing Delta-8, which is actually a byproduct of CBD, so you can't grow it. But And so your cartels growing Delta-8 and human trafficking. So as a result of that, they proposed legislation that was ultimately passed that enabled counties to impose moratorium on cultivation. And so, you know, in that sense, those have unintended consequences because the, the moratorium wasn't associated with CBD or any of the cannabidiol or anything like that. That impacts fiber and grain as well. And so it makes Oregon look like an environment where it's not hemp friendly. And as a result, you know, a lot of the acreage that was licensed just two or three years ago, where Oregon vaulted to be the second largest acres license in the United States, now it's ninth and soon to be out. It's been the number of acres licensed in Oregon declined almost 90% over two years and declined down to roughly 7,000 acres. And so that's pretty significant. Before the interview today, I actually pulled up the 2022 hemp plan for the state of Oregon, and it's 42 pages long. And even to a layperson like me, it seems unbelievably restrictive, almost more restrictive than the medicinal and adult use market. Yeah. If you think about it, with a viable and legal agricultural crop, the federal government and the state legislature should embrace hemp and nurture its growth and development. But instead, because people don't understand the definition of what hemp is and where it turns into marijuana and all this stuff, the laws are being written that control the industry rather than nurture it and support the growth and development of it. You know, I mentioned the decline in acres license. In 2019, there were over 64,000 acres in Oregon licensed. Last year, there was 7,300. That's a lot of farmers that are not farming now anymore as a result. And, and so this has a pretty sweeping impact. There's the infrastructure that I mentioned earlier, not having that infrastructure. Now that it's kind of in place, there's not enough acreage to support the infrastructure. Not only does the, these policies that kind of villainize him does it impact the cultivation industry? It, it impacts all of these other sectors of the economy as well. This may show my ignorance about the processing of industrial hemp, 
But can the substances that the state legislators talk about, which is the CBD, can those substances be extracted, sent away and regulated to a different market, and then the rest of the product still be used in an industrial setting? So basically, anything that they fear is stripped before it's sold, and then that stays in the controlled environment of a medicinal adult use market. Yeah, that's a great question. And and the answer is yes. A lot of folks don't necessarily want the regulation to ultimately rest at the farm gate, but they want it to be regulated at the product level. And that makes a lot of sense from a policy perspective, because before it gets into the consumer's hands and you give it a last check for public safety and content and all this other stuff. But by defining products as either legal or illegal based upon what's coming out of a field, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense from a policy perspective. And that's kind of where things are at right now. And as a result, it's preventing people from deploying facial creams and balms and deploying beverages and using hemp in the food chain for animal products and, and the like. So, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. And, and that's the policy implications, the externalities that occur when you have these controlling type of policies versus supportive policies. Have you looked at what policies are working globally and how they compare to the murkiness that we've been dealing with in the United States? Yeah, where the U.S. is significantly different is it takes a long time to get products approved for sale into these retail channels, especially when it comes to food, when it comes to animal feed, when it comes to cosmetics and supplements and the like. And so anything that's ingested takes an extremely long time. Now, if you think about it, you don't really think about why regulators should be overly concerned about hemp for animal feed, for example. There's a global shortage of animal feed. It's exacerbated by the Russian invasion in Ukraine. And there's already a a global shortage to the point where U.S. farmers and Oregon farmers are culling their herds because they can't feed their, their animals. And hemp is, once again, a superfood not only for humans, but for animals as well. Now, there's been data submitted for approval in the FDA for five years now. And it's still not even anywhere close to being approved for the introduction into the animal food chain. Mind you, hemp for human consumption is considered grass or generally regarded as safe. And so apparently the federal government is okay with human consumption, just not animal consumption. And so this is yet again one of these kind of bureaucratic issues that have been impacting the growth and development in the United States industrial hemp industry, but you're not seeing it as much in other countries. Why hasn't the FDA moved on this for five years? Hemp being approved for human consumption, but not as animal feed? Are there big industries that are lobbying against industrial hemp at multiple levels? Are there industries that are threatened by it? So just a little clarification on the FDA stuff. That's mainly a process issue. And so, and it's impacting not just the industrial hemp side of things, but other markets as well, right? But yes, the beverage, the alcohol industries is concerned about hemp equally as as much as the adult use and medical side because of the CBD, right? And then you've got the pharmaceutical industry and they've got their talons into this. And then even adult use and medical big business is threatened by market share, by the competition and the market share potential that hemp introduces versus 
In other words, adult use in medical, big cannabis, is threatened by hemp from a market share perspective. And so as a result, they are defining the narrative saying hemp is a drug, hemp should be regulated just like marijuana, and it should be taxed and all this stuff. And so controlled rather than being nurtured. I'm having a hard time understanding the rationale behind that. I would think that the adult use medicinal industry would want to embrace the hemp industry. I don't see how industrial hemp threatens unless they're worried that cultivators and processors are going to leave the medicinal adult use market for a larger economy in the hemp industry. You know, there's a lot of the fear of just the unknown. And businesses are concerned about their profitability. I mean, in my survey of adult use, 58% of operators in the adult use and medical space were not profitable. And so they're struggling and they have to compete against an illicit market and other markets. Now, based upon the survey that I just concluded on industrial hemp, 68% of industrial hemp farmers and processors and ancillary businesses are not profit. So it's even worse for industrial. So that's why I say that the industry really needs to be nurtured and supported. Now, there's these narratives that show up politically, like here in Oregon, they there was a statistic that said of all the farmers that grew industrial hemp, 58, coincidentally, 58% were testing hot above the 0.3% threshold, and that puts them in the illegal category. And so there was all this narrative associated with how hemp farmers are just a proxy for cartels. And when I really dug into the data, it really showed that only 13% of the hemp farmers were testing hot. That's up slightly from the previous year based upon results from the Oregon Department of Agriculture. It's very, very much almost identically in line with the national survey results that show about 13%, uh, 10 to 13% test hot. Now, when you say hot, how hot are they testing? I mean, hot is 0.31%, right? That's considered hot. That's considered hot, yeah. But there's others that test above 5%, but 5% isn't necessarily going to get you intoxicated or impaired. People aren't going to go out and roll up 5% THC industrial hemp unless they want to use it as a nicotine secession device. So that's really not the issue. But what was very interesting is the state police and other regulators that wanted more funding for law enforcement, then they leveraged the statistic of the 58%. And I think, quite frankly, that that was unethical. They used the data in a way in order to get more funding for their operations rather than presenting the data for data's sake, similar to what I do. I just present the data and let people make the informed decisions. And I think that skewed the decision-making at the legislative level in Oregon, and it's occurring all over the United States. And as a result, it's having this profound impact on the suppressing the growth and development of the industry. You've looked at the economy on the illicit side of the industry. And I do know that we do have a problem in Oregon with illicit grows, but the majority of that issue really is cartel-driven, non-licensed, rogue cultivators. So I would have to assume that your data shows that the illicit market 
had to up its game once there was a licensed market because the product quality had gone up and delivered that quality consistently. So those who play in the illicit game have had to produce a higher quality product now just to compete. And to me, that doesn't sound like an industrial hemp producer testing at 5%. You're absolutely right. Now, let's put this in perspective. So on the adult use and medical side, and there's always these conversations that toggle back and forth between the two markets, right? In Oregon, the demand for cannabis is about 650,000 pounds. And that's to support not only your flour, but your all of your derivative products like oils and vapes and edibles and tinctures and like 650,000 pounds. Because of the illegal activity and because of the economic incentives associated with growing low-cost cannabis in Oregon and shipping that to New York and Minnesota and Florida and elsewhere, the total production in Oregon, illicit and legal combined, is almost 4 million pounds. And so using hemp cultivators as the poster child for illicit production, that's just a false narrative. That's just absolutely incorrect. It's the cartels that are coming in under no pretense of doing anything legal, not even trying to do things legal, and setting up illicit grow operations and exporting that. I mean, that's the real issue. And when I provided data into the legislature on this, they were talking about all of the proliferation of the hoop houses and the greenhouses and and, and then saying that hemp farmers were growing illegally under the guise. And so when I looked at the at the licensing data, less than 1% of the total square footage of all of the licensed hemp operators, less than 1% was indoor or, or considered from hoop houses. But yet they're the poster child for illicit operations. And it's just a false narrative. And it, it's really unfortunate because what happened as a result of that moratorium is it disincentivized farmers in, say, eastern Oregon from using industrial hemp as a rotational crop and supplementing their income per acre by the use of production and growing of hemp. And so this has had this ripple effect. And so people now are getting out of the industry, out of the hemp-based CBD industry, and and they're moving their large-scale production that employs hundreds and thousands of people. They're moving that out of Oregon because it's just not a friendly environment for industrial cannabis. Is there a group or a force within Oregon that is trying to lobby and change that false narrative of industrial hemp? Because what was the decline in Oregon again? 90% in two years? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, what's interesting about this, and it's, it's interesting in a bad way, is that the value of the crop declined even more than the licensed acres. The, the licensed acres declined year over year 88.6% from 64, or in two years, from 64,000 acres to 7,300. The value of that crop, because of the oversupply, the regulatory murkiness, not getting products to market, and having an outlet for all of this supply that's coming online throughout the United States, the value of the biomass alone in Oregon declined in value from $5.5 billion to $22 million, 99.6% in two years. And so at one point, hemp 
was projected to be the top agricultural crop in Oregon, and now it's not really on the radar. Even with that not being on the radar, it's still the policies and legislation are still being used against hemp in order to suppress the growth and development in Oregon. It, to me, it just doesn't make sense from an economic perspective. How do we change the mind of the legislature? How do we encourage them to look at the data and really challenge that false narrative? Is it going to be by another state's example or another country's example? Is that what it's going to take? Well, you know when I said that hemp, the way that it's been rolled out is a harbinger of things to come with adult use and medical uh, upon full federal legalization. Well, just the opposite is occurring on the hemp advocacy relative to adult use and medical advocacy. There's a lot of thought leaders out there that do look at this as a single plant and that it should be regulated at the product level rather than at the farm gate. That's not necessarily making it into the narrative, but the adult use and medical industry has a voice. But early on in the evolution of that, there was all these different groups and they had different competing ideas and visions and priorities. And as a result, cannabis policy in general at the adult use level, it took a while for the dust to settle. So the same thing applies for the industrial hemp industry in Oregon. There's good strong voices, good thought leaders. They just haven't raised to the level yet of actually being heard by the policymakers and legislators. And so it's going to take some time. And once it does, then that's when things will really take off. What it takes is opportunities to educate people similar to this forum, meeting with legislators and regulators and the like to provide the data, to show the different product offerings, to reemphasize the fact that hemp is not a drug and then there's all these industrial applications and for fiber and grain, the solutions on the environmental side, the animal feed side, the automotive and green technology side. I mean, it, it's just going to take some time. I know when we spoke last time, you had done an economic forecast of the medicinal and adult use cannabis market cap in Oregon. If I remember right, you said that cap is $1.4 billion and that we were close to that economic ceiling at almost $1.2 billion. Have you done a similar forecast for industrial hemp in Oregon if we were to have a working model? Oregon, through the evolving and refinement of the adult use and medical programs, have captured about 85% of that, or $1.1 billion. The potential for industrial hemp really depends upon the emerging technologies and how rapidly that they can expand, and then also how quickly the technology can be productized and then deployed into the retail channel. Where I see this going is that there's going to be these large commercial operators, and then there's going to be these hemp-based campuses where you have a processor or a series of processors for fiber and grain and CBD. You have a storage. You have like a grain silo, if you will. Then you have the product manufacturing base that can use those processed materials and refine them and put them into finished goods form. And then you have a co-op of farmers that use their raw materials as a feeder for that type of economic activity. There's a campus out in Prineville that's a good example of that right now. And they're starting to sprout up all over the United States. And so I think this kind of this hub and spoke model where you have farmers supporting these campuses and the campuses drive employment and economic development, I think that's where 
things will go. It's just going to take some time before they can deploy that and have it really scale up to where it makes a, a significant impact and consumes a lot of the raw materials and you can you know, stand up the industry and reach its full potential. And at full potential, we can use every bit of this plant, right? There's not a leftover. No, and that's what's really interesting about this. There's a circular economy. And so you can use part of the plant to do industrial applications, part of the plant to do this and that and the other thing. And whatever's left over, you can recycle that and reuse it. And so it goes from plant into products and then back into the soil. I mean, you could even use the biochar to, you know, supplement the soil and and do carbon sequestration. So, you know, there's a lot to this that we're just now touching, you know, scratching the surface on. Where does industrial hemp stand nationally? Are we moving in the right direction? Are the conversations the right conversations, even though we've seen a tremendous decline over the past two years? Are you seeing us trying to right the ship and move back toward positive growth? You know, one of my questions in my survey was regarding business sentiment. How positive or negative are you about the future of industrial hemp? And I got a lot of inputs from Oregon as well as nationally to the point where there's like this... 95% confidence level. So pretty solid statistical, you know, capabilities in this data. The sentiment came in at 61. And so it's slightly positive, but not hugely positive. But what was really, really interesting in the data is that there seemed to be these bimodal distributions. And what I mean by that is that there were people that were extremely positive, saying that the future, it's 100, very positive. And then other groups where the sentiment was zero or 10. So there were two different camps and some part of this has to do with the struggles that they've faced over the last couple of years, declining licensure and declining acres license and the like, declining opportunities, declining bank accounts because of lack of profitability. But then for those people that have stayed the course, have realized their vision and are actually starting to make some revenue and starting to make some money on this, they're extremely bullish. So despite the 53% decline year over year in acres license from 2020 to 2021, despite the reduction in licensure at the processing and cultivation side, despite the collapse in prices from $43 to $1 per pound, despite all these headwinds, the regulatory murkiness, the villainization, people are still positive. And it's really amazing. And so that to me says that there's a lot of hope and optimism and that 2022 could be kind of the turning point. Now, part of the data I looked at excess inventories. And in those excess inventories, it went from 200 million pounds of excess inventory down to 60 million. So as a reduction of 70%, what that's led to is stability in pricing. So you're not seeing that free fall in pricing. And as a result of that, then it gives people more hope. And so people are generally going to plant the same or plant higher, plant more. Right now, they're only planting like 42% of their licensed acres. So not a whole lot, but they want to plant more and they feel like some sense of positiveness to their outlook. And so that to me says that given a little bit of support, given a little bit of regulatory reform, some guidance at the federal level that can help assuage the fears of the state legislators, just with a little bit of nurturing and development and support, the industrial hemp industry is really poised to take off. And I think it's going to start this year and then just accelerate. It's starting to show up in my forecasts. Whereas this last year, 235,000 acres 
licensed. By 2030, I'm forecasting almost 10 million acres. And so that shows that the potential on the fiber side shows the potential on the grain side with human feed and animal feed. And there's a Scotia CBD in there, don't get me wrong, but where the real action is is on the fiber side and on the grain side. And that's one of the reasons that people are so optimistic in the outlook, despite all these headwinds that have occurred over the last few years. Well, you leave me feeling hopeful as well. If people want to learn more about the work that you do, how do people find out about Whitney Economics? Yeah, just go to my website, WhitneyEconomics.com. It's as simple as that. And my team is very, very responsive to any inquiries. I do a lot of media requests. I, I think I'm quoted in the media between five and six times a day. So there's lots of media requests, lots of inquiries. Happy to do some consulting, some reporting and just really help provide the data that will be used to make good, informed, data-driven decisions, not only today, but in the future. So thanks for this opportunity. really appreciate it. Bo Whitney of Whitney Economics, thank you so much. You have a standing open invitation to this podcast, and I am sure that we'll speak again in the future. Mainstream media. What happens when you're a corporate strategist and supply chain expert with no background in cannabis then get diagnosed with cancer, and on recommendation, use the plant medicinally. If you're our next guest, you recover and co-found a female-owned and operated top-shelf cannabis cultivation company. We'll introduce you to the CEO of Alibi Cannabis on the next Mainstream Weedia on the COIN Podcast Network.